This is Rugger Matrix America. Welcome everybody to show number 44. I'm Alex Goff with Rugby Magazine and RugbyMag.com. Uh, very happy to welcome you to this show. It's a very exciting, different kind of show for us, and I'm pretty thrilled about that. And uh, with me, as usual, is Bruce McLean. How you doing, Bruce? Bruce McLean is doing really cold and really snowy. About a foot and a half we got here in New York City. Blizzard conditions, crazy stuff. But today, really, we have a terrific show. We have former Wallaby prop Ben Darwin, who is 28 caps for the Wallabies from 2001 to 2003. He suffered a neck injury in the semifinal in the uh, famous George Gregan's Four More Years game. Uh, he played for the Brumbies in Super Rugby, won a title in Super Rugby in 2001, was the runner-up in 2000 and 2002. He wasn't a whiner after after his injury. He went right into coaching and coaches club in Sydney, northern suburbs, where Christian Mayo is from. And then he moved on to the Western Force, where they started up in 06 with, uh, with, with Mitchell. And in 07... He went into he went into TV announcing at the at the Rugby World Cup, and that's pretty interesting stuff. Is that his wife is, is a is a is the TV announcer personality, and then in in 08 he went to NTT East in Japan to coach in a Japanese competition, and that, and, that, and he's got some good stories about that. And now he's the 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 assistant scrum coach and video analysis of the of the new Super 15 squad, the Melbourne Rebels. And he was born in England, and he is a, uh, but always wanted to be a Wallaby. And he's part of the Starlight Foundation, uh, which which helps seriously ill children, and really an inspirational character and an inspirational man. And we are very lucky to have Ben Darwin. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be on. Well, it's great to have you, Ben. We appreciate you taking the time uh, out of your vacation, I believe. And, you know, for, first of all, for American fans, they, they might not know this, uh, that when you got the call to uh, pretty much start your professional rugby career, you were actually playing in Las Vegas. Tell us about that. Yes, I was uh, actually visiting a mate of mine, Joe, who played at um, uh, in northern suburbs in Sydney. And I... Uh, uh, was actually chasing a girl at the time uh, across the <laughs> U.S. and I ended up in Vegas. I was supposed to stay for three days, and stayed for three weeks. And uh, actually spent a bit of time at uh, UNLV and went to a couple of UNV, UNLV games, uh, which I believe is at the stadium they now play the Sevens at. Um, That's on, right, exactly. My memories of that are slightly uh, dusty, but that was 1998. I got a call back to go on a tour with the Brumbies, so I had to cut my visit short to Vegas and. Uh, um, Obviously, didn't end up with that girl, and end up with the girl I'm married to now, which all worked out all pretty well. So I back, I came to Australia, and then off to the UK. Hey, I'll tell you, Ben, um, marrying girls in Vegas usually doesn't work out that well. So I think that <laughs> I think that uh, you know the <laughs> you, you made a good move. <clears throat> One of the things you had when you were a kid, you wanted to be a wallaby, but when when you were in school, you were kind of ranked number nine, and persistence is a big part of your story. And it, and it wasn't only being a Wallaby. You wanted to be an effective and 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 respected Wallaby. Can you tell us about that and and what you what what it took for you to become a Wallaby? Because it wasn't easy. No, and I think it's 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 never hard for anyone, and no one ever gets that level by accident. But um, yeah, I wasn't very good. I couldn't make the A's or anything in my in my uh, age group, and um, I actually saw the uh, the ninety the ninety one World Cup had a big impact on me. And uh, a guy called Phil Kearns, who was the uh, the Wallaby hooker at the time, and I sort of thought, you know what, that's exactly what I want to do. So I, I went away and I actually found out what all of the Wallaby front rowers did for a beep test and for a bench press and those things. And I judged myself off that standard, which at 15 was pretty diabolical. But um, I then just put my head down and trained and actually got myself a Wallaby jersey and put it at the end of my bed and and uh, hung it up and, and put on it, uh, Ben Darwin's going to play for Australia one day, under 21s and then senior level. And I, I, uh, they sat at the end of my bed until I achieved both those two goals. So that's how I kind of set it for myself. And I, I went about doing it. And for me, it was, even though I was that diabolical at that age, it was a case of, I'm just going to work until this happens. It wasn't a case of maybe or hope or if. It was it was probably blind faith in that way. But I, I kind of decided that's how it was going to happen. And it took, uh, took seven or eight years to occur. 
Ben, was that decision a, a real personal decision? Was it a national pride thing, or was it you just doing that for yourself and, and for you know, sort of a personal goal setting? Um, to be to be honest with you, actually, it came about because my parents had just split up, and I was having a real rough time with it, and I kind of wanted to put my energy into something, and so I changed from being a day boy at my school to to being a boarder. I don't know if that makes sense for your yeah, uh, sure, uh, 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 listeners, but um, I kind of wanted to put my energy into something, and. Uh, yeah, I, I decided to put my head down, and that was what it was. And I remember my mum saying to me at the time, if you play for Australia, I'll go to Twi- at, at, at Twickenham, which was really my big goal, I'll come and watch you play, uh, which she then did. She flew over to London for the three days to watch me play against England. So um, there was having a, a couple of people around me that, that kind of said, you know what, if you do it, we'll support you. And so I was very lucky on that front. Uh, I got a question about... You know, you were saying that you, you would you would play some second grade and stuff, and and Phil Kearns also played a lot of second grade, would especially at school level. Do you attribute some of that to the U19 law variations, where they're not playing the same rules as senior rugby, and you only get to push the, the scrum a yard and a half, and a lot of times what happens is they basically take overweight flankers and turn them into props, and they don't actually take props and let them be props. Yeah, that, have, that definitely happened a lot. And a lot of the guys I played against were much smaller. You know, when I was 16 or 17, I was 110 kilos, so 230, 240 pounds. But I wasn't, uh, I wasn't effective enough. So the one thing I really had to work on was my fitness. Otherwise, they wouldn't have given me a chance. Um, but I would say that having played in those lower down teams, um, it, it angered me a lot. Um, and that's probably a good thing in the long term. And I remember... Uh, not being picked for a team I wanted to be in uh, for a much smaller guy. And I remember saying to myself, you know what, I never want to be dropped again. I never want to be put in a situation again. So I think that does help. But a lot of big guys do get put off because of that under-19 law uh, because they're not as effective around the field and their scrummaging ability is not as important. And, and the one thing I would say is that scrummaging is not taught enough in the school age group. And it really wasn't until I hit senior level that I was really taught to, what to do at scrum time. You are one of the few Wallabies on the planet who has a winning record against the All Blacks, has has also beaten them on New Zealand soil, and and essentially ripped the hearts out of the New Zealanders in 2003 in the uh, in in the game of in the semifinal match where there was a leaping interception and he went all the way. Uh, but one of the things that you would also be thankful for is that you say the Case Muse, when when you got when you got hurt, probably saved your life. Um, can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I think the record was was a lot to do with that period, not only for us but for New Zealand rugby. They were in a little bit of disarray, but also uh, we had a level of belief, I think, with that team from that sort of '99 through to '0. 03 period was that even though we were not as good as them, we would always find a way to win. Um, and, and we certainly did that a number of times. We came back to win the game in the last minute or something like that. Um, that, uh, that semi-final, um, it was funny because we'd actually lost New Zealand quite badly earlier in the year and we came back to play the All Blacks in the semi-final. Uh, and obviously the, the, the Wallabies ended up losing that World Cup in extra time. But uh, that semi-final, there was a lot of belief on our front um, that we had a game plan that could beat the All Blacks. And uh, it was a good good feeling turning up to that stadium with, you know, 100 and, 100 and so thousand people knowing you were going to surprise them. And, and there was, uh, I think, 48th minute of the game. I, uh, there was a guy called Dave Hewitt who was a loose head prop for the All Blacks. And I'd been scrummaging a certain way against him and had been working. And then Case Muse came on and we always had a, a nice little rivalry and he came on and gave me that sort of big Maori uh, eyebrow. And he was pretty excited, and uh, I just I took the wrong angle into the scrum. My head got caught on uh, Mialamu's shoulder, and it twisted. And I, I thought it was like a firecracker going off in the grandstand, and I lost all feeling below my chin. And I was standing up in the scrum, and uh, I think Case could see the look in my eyes, but I just said, "Oh, my neck, my neck," and um, and uh, I I sort of fell to the ground. It, it looks on the video like I've been shot, but I sort of fell to the ground, and um, and he he actually sort of s- uh, stood over the top of me. Um, and uh, and the, I always say the greatest tragedy of that is my life was saved by a New Zealander. But I've uh, I'm very lucky. That I got to uh, I I got to live through that experience. And um, you know the doctors said you know you should either be a quadriplegic or worse off. So you're pretty lucky. But uh, looks like your your career is over. 
Ben, I remember that incident, and you know, does, doesn't that speak a little bit to sort of the brotherhood among front row players? That there's something that that crosses uh, rivalry lines in in some sense. Yeah, I think I think it does. I think there's a lot of you know, particularly at test level, for some reason, everyone understands, and you know, everyone's got families. Everyone knows what the most important thing is, which is living to to walk the next day. And at uh, some stage, someone's going to bump into one of these incidences at uh, one stage or another. But um, yeah, there's definitely a brotherhood that exists amongst amongst front rowers. And so, it's funny because I uh, I'm actually working with Greg Somerville now at the um, at the Rebels, and uh, there's even more of a brotherhood that exists amongst tight head props. Um, yeah, we're we're a different we're a different batch altogether. But um, no, it's. It's just one of those things you don't understand until you've been in the front row and you're going hard against someone else that you do, in a way, carry each other's lives in, in each other's hands. So there has to be a level of trust there, even though you're trying to to, uh, to to place pressure upon the opposition. Well, speaking of brotherhoods, now you're in the coaching fraternity and you've actually, you know, you you, you coached with Mitchell, you played for Eddie Jones, you played for Rod McQueen, and now you are coaching with Rod McQueen. And I was just wondering, what is it What is it that you've learned from them? Is there a, you know, are you taking a little bit from everybody? How does, what's the Ben Darwin coaching style and, and how, for, I mean, you have been fortunate. How fortunate do you feel you've been to deal with these guys and, and what different styles do they bring to the table? There's a, there's a whole different bunch of guys that have had big influences, but the, the biggest thing, I suppose, with Eddie, and, and I had Eddie as a coach for seven years, so that's a long time to work under him, and, uh, is that Eddie's work ethic is truly unbelievable. And I think that he's probably someone that's been the hardest on me. He's, he's had a couple of sessions with me where he sat down and said, you know, I didn't even know why you were here. I don't know why I brought you on tour. You've got to change things. And so he could be pretty brutal with the truth, but the one thing with Eddie you know is that he's actually doing it for your best interests, even though at the time you don't think that you want to kill him. But it, you know he's got your best interests at heart, and if you survive that, he'll respect you. And um, it's one of the hard things for me is that when I retired, I just get, got through the bit of surviving Eddie and starting to work pretty comfortable with him. Uh, with Rod, Rod's extremely good at bringing the right people together. Um, and, uh, you know, with the Rebels, we've got a, a bunch of uh, well-experienced coaches, but, uh, but guys who know what they're doing. And so Rod is more like a chairman almost. He'll bring in the right people and he'll let them do it how he wants. Eddie's entirely different to that. He, he'll look over every single uh, part of an organization and he'll ride everyone, but he rides them in the right way. And he demands the very, very high standards. So uh, I've had those two different guys and uh, let it sort of influence my style. I would say the one thing I try to bring to the table is my own experiences. And uh, the one thing I do remember with coaching is players don't make mistakes on purpose. You know, it's really easy to scream at a player for, for making mistakes. But if you do that, he's only going to make more mistakes because he's going to be nervous about you doing it again. So uh, I try to bring my own my own experiences to to the, to that. Um, but also understanding that each player is different and each player needs a different um a different level of empathy or sympathy or whatever you want to call it. And I particularly, I think, learned that in Japan. Well, actually, you, you also, you have that recent playing experience talking to uh, players who've, who've, you know, and you say, well, I've been there and I haven't, you know, it wasn't that long ago. But it, the other bit of your experience, Ben, that really intrigues me is is the team building aspect because you went with the Western Force when they were just starting up. Uh, you know, a, an out of whole cloth, uh, super, super rugby team. And now you're with the Rebels in Melbourne and exactly the same thing. You're building a team from the ground up. Uh, what are some of the things that uh, you can bring to the table in terms of team building and program building? But also, what are some of the things you've learned about it? It's, um, you know, the Western Force was a very interesting experience, and I think they'd probably be the first to admit they, they made some mistakes in that, and they had some difficult yeah. But uh, with us, it's a case of what do we actually want to be seen as? Who, who do we want to be uh, in the long term? What, what do we want to have people say about us? And then it's a case of really, really saying, well, okay, if we want to achieve that, um, what are the processes we need to go about in order to do it? And you've got to do that 
right down to some pretty uh, finite steps. Um, one of the things with a competition is that everyone's changing all the time. So if you say, you know, we want to be top four and no one else t turns up that year, then maybe that's the wrong goal to have. So we really haven't gone along the notion of where do we want to place. We've actually said, right, what type of rugby do we want to play? Obviously, I can't go into that part, um, but it's it's really about what uh, what standards do we want to set for ourselves on and off the field, and uh, and how do we keep to that? And then what are we going to judge that by? Um, you know, some guys will get in trouble on and off the field because they're unlucky. Some guys will get in trouble because, well, not get in trouble, but they'll still do the wrong thing. So it's important understanding uh, how we judge ourselves and um, and then trying to trying to build that kind of culture and uh, and not make it about the individual. And and definitely a mistake a lot of startup organisations make in any sport is they'll bring in the the they'll bring in the talent without bringing in the right type of people, and uh, and it backfires. Well, Ben, you make some uh, some parallels between uh, an expansion team in in the NFL starting up, and the and the the Rebels, and I think that there are some definitely some parallels there. There are some things that aren't quite the same in in that in the NFL, for the most part, the the talent the talent uh, funnel is is finite. Everyone knows where the players are coming from, and there's a specific draft and. Uh, to draft in the players and, and people say well I know where to look for the players which ones are available for the rebels especially with the the rule you have where you have more foreigners allowed the the the, the pool sort of has expanded and it's very fluid and there are still players all over the world who um, would you know would give their right arm to go play super rugby and I, you know, so I'm interested in, in how you you go about. You know, you're looking for leaders, and you said you had many former captains on the team, and that that's a great way to 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 get that team together. But at the same time, also, what kind of what kind of talent net is thrown out there? And I guess on an American slant, you know, what what could what could an American player who wants to break into the Super 15, what could he do to get there? Well, I think that the one thing we know now with rugby is that it's not blind like it used to be. You don't go on word of mouth. You get to see everything. Um, and uh, it made, it's made my life pretty interesting as the video analyst because it's my job to source all the footage. Right. So uh, I've been sourcing hundreds of games from all over the world, particularly from the uh, Northern Hemisphere. So I grab everything from the Magnus to the Heineken Cup to uh, to the Top 14 to uh, the Italian competition. Um I haven't, I haven't got much of the U.S., but I've got some USA games. Uh, we'll grab the Pacific Nations Cup. So um, there's probably eight or nine professional competitions that we could look within. Um, the other Super 14 teams in Australia, uh, not so much, although you know some of the South African teams have been known to get some foreign players, and obviously Todd Clever's been a pretty good example of that for the Lions. Right. Um, but, uh, no, it's, we, we've cast a huge net. Um, we haven't actually filled, to my understanding, our, um, our level of foreigners. Uh, I think we've allowed 10. And then it drops by two every year to eight, six. And I think we've actually got eight at the moment. But we're very lucky. And we've got a guy called Mark Bakewell, who's our forwards coach. And I work pretty closely with him. And he's been coaching in the UK. And so he's kind of handpicked some guys that he was impressed by and wanted to bring over. Um, we've got quite a number of New Zealanders. And it's not just their level of experience uh, on the field that actually has counted a lot. We've actually found it's helped a lot. With a, with a style of play. You know, New Zealand has a style of play, South Africa has a style, whereas we can mix it up. And the other part we've got right on our doorstep is rugby league, and we've, uh, we've grabbed a coach from there and Andrew Johns, and we've grabbed um, a guy called Cooper Verner from the Newcastle Knights and some other guys who've been playing rugby union, switched over to league and come back. So, um, uh, like I said, it's been, it's been hard from my point of view because I've got to have to get a lot of footage and look at a lot of guys, and I'll, what I would do is actually code up guys so our coaches could look at them pretty quickly, just their efforts. Um, but uh, no, it's it's been a good experience, and it's brought a lot of different things to the table for us. Excellent. Oh, you mentioned you mentioned Todd Clever, and he uh, he's playing in Japan now, but he did have his two years with the Lions in the Super 14, first American to play in that competition. And Bruce, I keep interrupting you, but sorry, but uh, I wanted to know your impressions of Todd's performance in the Super 14, whether that helped or hindered or didn't do anything in terms of how Americans are perceived in that competition. Um, and also maybe maybe give people a little bit of insight as to what it's like for him playing for Eddie Jones in Japan 
which you know quite a bit about. Well, my uh, my wife actually did an interview with uh, with Todd and also with Eddie um, about those experiences. And, and Japan is a very different place altogether. To start with with uh, with Todd though in the Super 14, I think he was lucky and unlucky. He was he was unlucky in that the Lions didn't perform as they probably should have given the amount of talent that they had. And so, um, you know, he had to spend quite a bit of his time tackling, poor guy. Um, and they didn't, uh, you know, they maybe didn't get the type of performances on the field that they, they should have. Having said that, if he'd been at a team like the Crusaders, um, I wonder if he would have got that opportunity in the, in the starting team. So it's, it, it may have been the right choice from a lot of ways. Um, I, I think it has opened up a, a real door for guys in the US. And, I, and I, I would like to see a time when there is two or three guys um, in each Super 14 team in Australia from, from overseas and from markets like Japan or from markets like the US. Um, I was, when I was a lot younger, we had a USA high schools team come and visit our school um, and they were a lot bigger than us, but they just had that little bit on the individual skill portion that they, sure. didn't, they didn't quite have and it just looked like they'd been playing it for a couple of years less than ourselves. We'd obviously been playing some of us since we were six years of age. Um, and uh, I've, I've, uh, the one thing I do know with those American guys, and, and I'm sure you've, and I've, you've heard you guys talk about it a lot on the show, is they have that level of physicality, um, but just getting them to play younger so things come a little bit more naturally for them will have that, that point of impact. Um, but there's no question seeing Todd, you know, he's, he's a test level player. He's not a, he's not a super 14 level player. And he, he shone within that Lions team, um, uh, at this standard, and I think a lot of people didn't expect that and were, were pleasantly surprised. The hope is now more guys obviously get picked up. I, I think the one of the things Todd brought to the table in a, a little bit is that in basketball they say he's got game, meaning that Todd can catch restarts, he can catch kicks, stay in deep, he can run with the ball, he's got a reasonable pass, he could tackle. He could. He's a line-out jumper. He's a pretty good line-out lifter. He could do a lot of things, and he does a lot of things pretty well. Whereas maybe nothing is is at is at the level of the best in in the world at at, at each skill. But he could do everything. He could kind of do everything, so he doesn't hurt you, and you kind of can budget your performance. You kind of know what he's giving you. But that said, one of the things we want to talk about is you coached in Japan for a while, and Japan really hadn't beaten the United States up until very recently. Uh, and what have you learned in Japan, having been there, that you could translate if you were to come over to America, say, now, and give America a little bit of a blueprint or a little bit of an idea of something that you would put in place to help us get to, and I call it the fringe of Tier 1 or the top level of Tier 2, like beating Tonga, Samoa, Italy, Scotland, and Wales. Scotland's performing quite a bit better these days, but you know what I'm talking about. Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is sort of off the field. The one thing that, that, that Japan has is the corporate finance. And, uh, you know, what they're good at is they're good at understanding what's our strength. And uh, for them, their strength is uh, um, there's a lot of money over there behind the game. It's not seen as a profit model. You know, like we... You know, our company had was a $300 billion company and we're spending all this money on rugby, but we'd have 25 people there at the game. Um, you know, maybe sometimes a couple of hundred, but it wasn't there uh, from that perspective. So the, what the Japanese do is they play to their strengths. I think you guys talked about a couple of weeks ago that, that the strength in the U.S. game is, is, in the college, is in the college system. So playing to the strengths of what is actually going to, um, to draw more people to the game is using the college system in the right way. Um, and, and I know the Super League is having success as well, but I, I think that, that people, uh, knowing what is going to be successful for the U.S. is important. At an international level, I was really, really impressed by USA in 07, particularly the way they put the hammer down against the, um, uh, against the English. And it's, it's, uh, it, obviously, they've got a successful tight game. They've got the big forwards. It's that ability to be able to play different types of rugby at different times. Uh, successfully, I think is, is probably makes a big difference. And that's what the All Blacks bring to the table at the moment more than anything else, is they can play five different types of games well. Um, and I think uh, maybe the US has, has one type of game that they do very well, but it's that uh, uh, multiplicity, I suppose, to their, to their skill level um, and, uh, and, their, and their tactics that could make the point of difference for them in the long term. Because I think you, if you just play one way, you get found out. 
go I want to uh, I want to keep on going on that theme. Um a lot of times playing one way I I find that when you're a very drill oriented coach or drill oriented team and and you know you kind of this is the way we do it we do it our way and you're taking this and we're going to shove it down your throat and if our battering ram doesn't go through your brick wall we're dead. Whereas there's another coaching style where you use a lot more in, in games and, and allow the players to make decisions and, and you know, you kind of work through the mistakes and allow people to read the game and have people un- almost understand what their strengths and weaknesses are and also understand what their teammates' strengths and weaknesses are. Whereas, like, say, you know, you're playing on the Brumbies and and – they have a choice of hitting you and Owen Finnegan into the same hole, you know, chances are I'd want to hit Owen Finnegan unless I'm two yards out from the line, brother, I'm going to trust you. But, you know, I'm, I just, but you know what I'm saying? Like, like I would, I would trust you more in the clear out and Owen Finnegan with the, with the rock in his hand. You know what I'm saying? So what is your approach? Do you coach a lot in games or do you, or are you a very structured drill-oriented coach? Well, the thing for me is that I'm a set-piece coach, so you do tend to start with drill. I always start with the notion of you've got to get the real, real basics. And for me, that's like hand position and lift or set up on the scrum. You don't go any further than that. But I do, I really like the, the Crusaders way they coach, which is almost entirely around games and, and dexterity. Like the Crusaders, I was talking to Brad Mika, who was with us at NTT in Japan. He was saying a couple of days a week, they just play basketball or they'd play squash, just to get guys uh, in a different scenario uh, using tactics and, and thinking on their feet. So once you get those basics out of the way, uh, I think using a game theory is, is very, very helpful. If you've got, you can actually see a team that's just entirely drill-based and, uh, and you can normally find them out pretty quickly. And, the, and the, the thing is, is a test scenario is so entirely different. You've got to be doing things under pressure at pace with people calling out different things and people putting you under under pressure because those drill those those drill based teams you do one or two um you do one or two things to throw them off and everything gets thrown off. Well, and and, and I only brought that up because we we've been in in those situ, in those circumstances, and one of the things I found is when your team is very inexperienced but they're tough, you know you kind of got to say all right we're going to take what we can get good at and get good. But if you have a, a team that has that has the opportunity to really have a game and really play a lot of different ways, I think you gotta you know take the reins off them and let them go. And I, I always get interested in that because it's a hard thing. Because you sit there, you're not in control when they're playing games a lot. Like you can't control everything they're doing. Where they're doing drills, you can control everything that they're doing. Well, I'd say to you, you can control drills, but in the game scenario, you can't control the opposition. So there's always a sense of chaos. There's always a sense of, of having to deal with what's in front of you. And so the more players do that in the training scenario, the better they're going to be equipped. Uh, you know what? I w- we want to get into something, uh, a technical aspect that one of the things that really has turned me and my club on to total impact method scrummaging from uh, Mike Crone before I knew what the hell it was, was... Looking at Greg Somerville when he was playing for the Crusaders and the All Blacks and how he set up and what made him great. And I figured that if we can get our guys to do that, that even though we're smaller than everybody, we can smack people around because the half of the battle is setting up. Well, you coach Greg Somerville now, and off air we were talking. He, he has a very interesting uh, physical ailment, and, and if you could talk us through some of the things that – you look for as a scrum coach just give us a kind of a blueprint of how you start and build the scrum and tell us a little bit about greg and then we'll get into some other stuff about the technical front row issues well i think uh first things first with a guy like greg uh you don't coach him he coaches you you know he's got a he's got a pretty good level of experience particularly with gloucester obviously then with the all blacks and uh, we've also got mark bakel who coached the bath scrum to a lot of success so uh, in many ways, I just watch assist. And, and um, we use the video a lot, replaying uh, the efforts of the guys they've just done so they can actually see, uh, see back and we can give technical assistance there. Um, with Greg, uh, I don't know how he does it because the way I scrummage is I scrummage, I like to scrummage off my inside leg at tight head. 
uh, and he doesn't have a big toe on his left foot. So um, due to some kind of a farming related accident from what I understand, but uh, how he's able to create pressure to the outside without a big toe is incredible. Um, uh, you're entirely right, Bruce, that that setup is, is nine tenths of the law in terms of scrummaging. And um, I think the world has changed the last couple of years because of Mike Cron. One of the things he, he actually did was go to Japan and looked at how sumo wrestlers set up. Um, and they, uh, everyone used to be about being on their toes, whereas with sumos, they, they really sit back and they derive their power from a flat foot. Um, and you can see that now in the way that Heyman's been scrummaging and, and, um, and just making sure they're balanced and comfortable in their bind first and actually sitting back a little bit more so they can deliver their power appropriately and they don't kind of like um, overextend on a punch. Um, I, I, as a tight end, like I said, like to um, isolate the loose head I was against first. Um, if you tend to uh, focus too much on trying to hit straight down the middle, um, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. You get to your, your um, which is in a way how I had my injury, but uh, you'll get a, a hooker's left shoulder coming up underneath you and the, the loose head will be coming across at you. And you've talked a lot, Bruce, about uh, starting uh, starting between the two. And as if you do line up head to head, you'll end up um, you'll end up heading towards too much towards the middle, which the Africans I, I find tend to overdo a lot. Uh, Castro Giovanni, the tight end for Italy, does it uh, too much and, and uh, sometimes gets taken for boring in, depends on who the referee is. But uh, I, I like to be balanced and, and focus on the outside hip of the loose head prop um, post-contact and isolate him and make him adjust, and then I can head towards the middle. Yeah, no, what I, and, that, and, that, and that's, an, that's an interesting point. Is, and, and we were talking about this off-air. One of the things that we, we, we talk about in scrummaging is that the tight head has to set in such a way that he is between the head of the loose head and the hooker. But... I find personally that in the event, like a lot of times people say, tell their tight heads to go in at the hooker and play a two on one on the hooker. I think that's a destabilizing factor. Now, uh, Julian White would probably be the worst at it. Castro Giovanni is now starting over him and, and is just as bad. But if you hit out to the right and keep your vectors going out to the right, and, and and you play your loose head one-on-one -on -one in the hooker place, his hooker one-on-one in -on -one the loose head place, the tight head one-on-one, -on -one, and you're good at it, you have a, a pretty good chance of having a very effective scrum. And one of the tactics that they use to, to deal with that is that the loose heads will try to either go around, you know, kind of eliminate you from anything and, and just kind of go around you. And then all you really do is, and Ben, you just correct me if you think this is... If, if, on a normal scrumming circumstances where you're going one-on-one -on -one with your loose head and you get your head into his, into his uh, breastbone or, or sternum, and then you can't quite get it into his sternum, but if you do, you're a monster. You want to look for your, el your right elbow of the tight head to be beyond his shoulder when he binds. That's if the loose head's engaging. If the loose head's not engaging then the tight head will almost drop his right arm into his hip and just let, the, just let the loose head slide by him and not give him anything to scrummage on and just attack straight, which will essentially be the hooker. And then the hooker will, after one or two times of doing that, he'll demand that his loose head stand in and deliver. Would you agree with that, or have I confused the hell out of everybody? No, I, 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 you may have confused the hell out of everyone else, but I know exactly what you're saying, and I agree with it entirely. Um, <clears throat> And, and the thing about it is, is that in club football, you'll get away with aiming in at the hooker. And because you won't have those good combinations that are working hard together of a one-two. And so guys will then come into the senior level, think it'll continue to work, and they'll get put skyward and they'll get diced. And it's an entirely new skill. And I, I was really lucky. I had a guy called Andrew Blades who taught me how to isolate that, that loose head prop and to, um, to at least make him take one or two steps back and at that stage, even then, you don't try to head towards the inside because you're actually giving him another chance. You just keep making him uh, keep stepping across, stepping across until your ball is won. Um, if you want to attack them on their, their ball, then you can take that, that, um, that attacking position at the hooker. But it can be such a mistake, and you see a lot of guys make it. Uh, in terms of the bind, um, my focus a lot of the time is on making sure that my shoulder is in the right position on the back of his neck. And a lot of guys make the mistake of, of trying to work too much with their with their hand and actually ignoring what happens with their shoulder. Whereas if you get the shoulder in the right position, it'll fold the neck 
of the uh, of the loose head under, and and make him definitely roll through his uh, through his spine, particularly the top half of his spine. And then he you can't deliver any power to. You look at Sheridan, you know he's six foot four and he can bench 220 kilos, but you put him in the right position, none of that matters anymore, and you just make sure that he's he can't deliver any of the power that he's trying to deliver to you. Well, that takes us to our next point. A lot of times, tight head props, they touch and they come back and they leave this massive, gigantic target. Loose head props sometimes spread themselves from their hooker dramatically to leave a massive, gigantic gap. And we were talking that it's not supposed to be easy and and you focus on the outside hip of the uh, of the loose head. Talk us through some of the set points of setup of tightening your your shoulder to your chin or almost to your ear, leaving a fist up there, getting in and kind of and using your shoulders, especially the hooker and the tight head who have who have people on either side of their shoulders, kind of turning them in. And and oh, you you spoke about Mike Crone doing a, a sumo thing. His his sumo videos on YouTube, you just look up Micron Sumo, and he'll tell you about turning your shoulders in and how and 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 keeping your your uh, your arms close, and that's a very powerful powerful position to move people. Well, I think first things first, a lot of mistakes people make uh, come at hooker when they're trying to pull their uh, props on too much, and end up actually pulling their shoulders up, leaving the opportunity there for the uh, for the tight head or the opposition hooker to come in at them. Um, and, and so I think definitely making sure that your binds um, uh, appropriately release your shoulders to stay down through the point of contact for the hooker. As a, as a tight head prop, um, I didn't like to get too far away from my hooker, but I needed to make sure that I had the appropriate bind. I normally put my hand on the back of his shorts, uh, not too tight, so that I could release my left shoulder down far enough to get underneath uh, the hooker. And then, uh, as I said, I like to be back and nice and balanced and then keep... Uh, you know, keeping your neck nice and short, attacking out underneath. And that, that notion you're talking about of the loose head leaving the hooker, I think can be such a big mistake because it just leaves that opportunity for the tight head to smash straight back in. So um, the loose head combination, you want to work in, in a combination, the loose head hooker together, nice and tight, and that um, and you don't give the, the tight head anywhere to go, that you basically both work to pincer it. Um, and, uh, and like I said, you then, you then make sure on your setup that you, you get your right shoulder down for the tight head, sorry, you get yourself nice and down and under on the point of hit and then uh, make sure that um, that you're below him. You know, refer- one of the hard things I find about scrummaging is that the is that if you're a good tight head and the loose head is bad, is that oftentimes you can be penalized. If you're a good if you're a good loose head and you've got a bad tight head, you can be penalized because you're taking the scrum up because the tight head can't keep it down. Um, and I think sometimes referees can get confused between someone breaking the law and someone getting getting smacked. That brings up another thing, Ben, you know, partly about the referees. I was going to ask you about referees, and I was also going to, going to ask you about the development of the of front row play, especially in the scrum, whether it's, uh, it, it's, it's a dying art or whether it's just an evolving art. But it is, you know, you mentioned the referees, first of all. Is, is, is that a problem? And it just—it always seems to be a problem that the maybe the the referees are are a, a step behind the developments in the scrum, and and except for the very very best ones, uh, are are in need of some continuing education on that front. I think they're always in need of education, and I definitely think that for referees, it's the way that they're taught. You know, I think it's getting better. I think Mike Cron's had a good impact, particularly with the New Zealand referees, in not so much looking for what's against the laws, but but. What are guys trying to do in order sometimes to get a penalty off you? You know, some teams will pull back on the hit to get an opposition for pushing off the off the shove. Whereas if you look at it strictly from a uh, from a rule perspective, you'll always penalise the team that goes forward and, and pushes the ball, team off the ball on the on the hit. There's a lot of little signs you can pick up all the time as to whether uh, as to who might be responsible for a collapse. I think you know uh, uh, there was a there was a um, one of the guys, I think, from Bath was talking on, on the Rugby Matrix International show about how they have this clock in the European rugby on uh, on the how long it's been since normal play was on, you know, how long that's it's right. been yeah. from. And I think that's diabolical. I think, you know, that's only putting more pressure on the referee to get a result. And 
you know, it seems that 50% of the time that result is off the mark. Uh, scrums collapse. Sometimes there's no one to blame and you've just got to maybe just get them a little bit close together and go again. And, and other times they'll penalise guys for the wrong reasons. And I think, you know, maybe getting, getting referees and actually, you know, doing some work with them three on three against other referees in a scrum environment and saying, well, this is what this feels like. This is, uh, you know, uh, if this has fallen over, this has fallen over, not because it's your fault, but simply because maybe the track is bad. We had a test against the All Blacks uh, down in, uh, in the stadium in Melbourne and the track wasn't up to scratch and guys were hitting each other hard and the ground was giving way and there'd be a penalty. And then there'd be a penalty against the other team for, no, for, uh, for the same reason. Um, and so there wasn't any logic to it. And those things can decide test matches. So that's something that worries me. I don't think it's a lost art. Uh, there doesn't seem to be as many scrums as there was two or three years ago in games. They seem to sort of now be around the, the 10 to 20 mark. Um, and the only concern I would have is when there are so few scrums in a game that it starts to dictate the body shapes um, and that there aren't as many. Um, it, it doesn't decide a game in, in the appropriate fashion anymore. I think it'll always decide the game because that, that whole five-meter scrum thing, and, and that's uh, a lot of what, what we talk about is a lot, a lot of teams, you're not going to break their, you're not going to break their fitness because people are fit. You've got to break their will. You have a team with a five-meter scrum, and, and you could, and and you know that you could clear your line if you have a five-meter scrum, and they know that when they have a five-meter scrum, they're in hot water, probably boiling water. That is that I think that takes a lot out of them emotionally, and that just dips into them breaking their will, and eventually when you break their will, they're dead. I mean, England beat Australia over the summer or your winter. But it beat them over the summer with essentially a scrum, and that's it. Nothing else. They couldn't do a damn thing. It, but Australia just couldn't scrummage inside their own 22, and they got murdered for it. Ben, I got a, I got a quick question about you were talking about being very compact in your neck, which is critical. And I also would say that even further into your spine, because a lot of times what happens is on the engage – Instead of coming from staying compact in your upper body and neck and firing from the ground, from your feet, what happens is that the player elongates and kind of throws their upper body into the guy and makes a really long spine that upon impact accordions back. Yep. Like, yep. um, what do you do? Do you work a lot, or or, do you, or is or are you above that level where that elongation just turns into like an accordion? Or do, do you is that something you focus on? Is that something that you had to focus on in Japan? You definitely do, and and a lot of people again they go they try to go to the tactics first rather than going to the skill. But you know one thing we introduced with our team in Japan was was the notion of using things like Pilates. You know, using core stability because. If you don't have that core stability, you've got nothing. Particularly for the uh, for the loose head, I find uh, the strongest guy I've ever seen at, at Pilates is a guy called Bill Young, uh, who's who was a you know I would say looked like a homeless man, but could scrummage like there's no tomorrow. And it, having that core stability is super important, and that's actually going to draw uh, your back and your um, and your your lower back and your and your traps together, and and delivering that power. Um, we talk about shortening the neck a lot of the time. So, you know, not trying to elongate, like you said, because otherwise you will, you'll get that, that uh, gap in the spine and then it'll come back together and you get that impact. So keeping everything nice and close, um, you know, as how I sort of have about five things I'm looking for with a guy. The first is a shortening of the neck. The second is the, the pulling on of the scaps. So, um, you know, making sure that, that your, your, the top half of your back is nice and flat, you know, the rotation of the hips, so that at, when you have that rotation, that the lower part of the back, particularly for young guys, is a, is a major thing. So having, you know, a bit like walking like a duck. Um, and I think if you have that rotation hips, that's also going to help shorten your back. And then putting a view core on. And, and uh, one way guys do that actually is, um, uh, I'm going to forget the technical term, but your, your, through your iliopsoas, through your, your central core, through your hips, is actually pushing your tongue up into the roof of your mouth. And that actually draws your core on. And actually, uh, it keep, helps you keep that stability. And it's it's not just the, actually the ability to hit; it's actually the the ability to keep that stability through, you know, up to you know 45 seconds in the scrum. 
and then be able to deliver that power. Because it's not just about you producing power, it's about taking the power that's behind you with your flanker, your uh, right side, second row, and sometimes your number eight if he's on, um, and, and putting that into the opposition. That, that's an interesting point about putting your tongue in the roof of your mouth. What'll happen is if, if you leave your tongue dangling and somebody pushes on your forehead, you'll find that your neck is quite weak. If you put your tongue in the roof of your mouth, you'll find that when you shorten your neck, they can't move your neck back. They can't move you at all. Ben, could you, if you were to build a scrum, do you do, do you do one-on-one work, uh, two-on-one work, or do you do one-on-one, three-on-three, four-on-four? I, I, I think that Bakewell probably really does some cool stuff because I heard that he is uh, awesome. Yeah, he's As a very. I heard Foley too. Yeah, yeah, Foley's good, and um, like I said, Andrew Blades, uh, who, who was with Australia before Foley got there, and um, and Bakewell's a very, very good operator and I think one of the other good operators in Australia is Alec Evans who's been with the Wallabies on and off during different periods. I obviously don't want to give away too much as to what we're doing because you never know who's going to be listening to the show and I know it's very popular so uh, I can't give away too much but I would say that um, uh, you know I, th- I, I, I wait I, I meant drill wise not tactical wise. Yeah, yeah. I'm the, not um, talking about tactics. The, the one thing I, I think that is if you get if you are functioning on a scrum machine within your first couple of weeks and you're making some mistakes I think you you really need to be focused on uh, first of all your your binding combinations and getting that so that it becomes second nature. Because under when you're under duress, if it's not second nature, then then um, then the, the pressure will hit the fan, so to speak. And then uh, working within a two-man combination with a a prop and the second rower who will be obviously uh, bound and behind him, and, and working on that combination, making sure the backs are flat and you get delivery of power. And then we will work one-on-one with drills, and then we'll work one-on-one with body shape, and then you do the two-on-two. Um, I, I like to have the, uh, the side of a scrum versus the other side of a scrum, so you'll get a, uh, a two-three uh, and a second rower, and maybe a flanker off the side and number eight just holding uh, against a, um, a two and a, a one uh, with a second rower, flanker, and a number eight holding. Um, so you have those, those combinations working together, and particularly making sure you're firing correctly. You know, we'll work very, very slowly towards the eight on eight because if you don't get the individual portions of that right first, then there's no point. And I think one of the the, the, the source of frustration for a lot of coaches is they do go on the machine early or they do go straight into eight on eight and they just get a huge amount of collapses because it's not the game scenario. And so I think it's important to punish players uh, when they do get the eight on eight collapses and saying, you know what, if we do this again, we're going to have to start running 100s. Um, particularly with, with junior teams, they need to understand we're here for a point. We're not here to actually show uh, how good we are individually. We're here to work together. That, that was extremely interesting, and, and, and we greatly appreciate it. And, I, and I, I could talk all day about this, but I think it's about time that I shut my yeah. mouth. Uh, I, I th- I, well, I think, first of all, that uh, anybody listening and, and wishing that Bruce would put his tongue to the roof of his mouth, I, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. His neck is strong enough as it is. And uh, Ben Darwin, um, we've, we've learned an awful lot. Um, you know, we did, we had to do a little bit of translation. I think, I, I, I think most people know a day student, that's a student who comes to school in the day and then goes home. And those of us who were boarding students would look down our nose at the day students, as I remember. But uh, um that's always a kind of a uh, an interesting choice that you made for your rugby, and um, actually, oddly, that was a decision I made because of rugby was to be a boarding student, not to be a day student, um, and it didn't work out quite the same for me as it did for you. But that's neither here nor there. And then we also um, we just we learned so much about how you set up that scrum. But I was very interested also in your observations about uh, building a team. And and creating creating a team out of out of nothing and uh, trying to set fascinating stuff, trying to set short term goals. That's the difficulty. Long term goals. Everyone has pretty much the same long term goals. Setting short term goals. And I would perhaps to finish up, I would go back to that just to say, back to the United States. The United States national team must always be clear to itself, if not to anyone else, about what its short-term goals are as well as its long-term. And I, and I think what's going to be interesting too is when will the U.S. be comfortable about beating a superpower in the game? I've, I've spoken to a number of guys who played in the sevens 
um, and they've played w with the U.S. at different times, and they've actually said, you know what, there's there's been times when the USA Sevens team has actually had it over us, and we knew uh, that they could beat us, but we weren't sure if they knew they could beat us. But when they feel comfortable that they've actually done enough work to beat an England or an Australia or a New Zealand, and uh, and I think when that does occur one day, and I, I've no question it will, I think everything changes um, because you you know you can be a, a championship team uh, and not know it until that actually that day actually comes, and you might be a championship team a long time before before you believe it. So uh, everyone in world rugby awaits with bated breath for the USA to become that superpower. Um, but I think that the US rugby has to has to be comfortable uh, first that they are good enough to get that done. That is brilliant. That is a beautiful thought to end it. And uh, Ben Darwin, we, we are uh, honored to have you on the show. And uh, thank you very much for taking time out of your vacation to talk to us. That's an absolute pleasure, guys. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ben. And uh, hopefully you come back and maybe we'll have you on during the... We will have you on during the Super 15 if there's – you probably don't have a whole lot of time as the video guy. <laughs> but maybe on the bye week, they'll give you a day off. There's no days off for coaches. Be more than but, to, my bye week is when my uh, my baby is going to be uh, due to be born, but uh, I'm sure we can find a way to get it done. Wow, that's good timing, but, uh, but we would love to have it. Thank you very much, Ben, and certainly we will try to talk to you another time. That's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Cheers, thanks. Thank you. All right, well – Bruce McLean, that was uh, that was a great talk because here's a guy who is, you know, we're, he, he's an Australian guy. He's playing for the the Australian national team, and people think, well, Rugger Matrix America, why are we talking uh, to him? Because he's got some insight into playing in Japan, which uh, the 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 best American player. Uh, on the national team, that's where he's playing, and and certainly that's a professional league where other people might be looking to play. Then he's got the experience about putting together a team from nothing. Who who might be interested in hearing about that? Well, maybe the Utah Warriors for one thing, a, 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 a heavily a well financially backed team that uh, is uh, is getting is being put together right now. I think that's an, is some some interesting stuff there. And, and then also just his viewpoint of the game and certainly um, of the scrum. And I realized, Bruce, that, that there's the scrum and then there's maybe about 3% something else happens on a rugby field for you. But uh, but the, the scrum was great stuff. So very interesting. Yeah, he, you know what? He's a terrific guest. He's actually he's a terrific guy. And it was very gracious of him to come on and share his expertise in, in the uh, – in the scrum and 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 he we we we, like, we could have gone on forever that's for sure yeah, pre that's pre pre show we we uh we probably had an hour conversation that we discussed what we were going to have a conversation about so that yeah. was uh that was pretty that was pretty interesting and when we and we could have gone on for more but that all being said it, it was it was gracious him being there. Now we didn't get to some of the things that maybe we we'll talk about from a domestic standpoint. Sure, I will address the Super League issue. I will address the Dick Dinelli letter. I will address the eleven teams in the league. I will address why we have a short season. I will address a lot of of different things. Probably later in January when the Super League has their meeting. And everything is absolutely finalized. Then I can I could be, I don't I don't want to address things and then have things change on us. Right. That, that that's fine. I mean, that, there, I've got a column up right now. I saw the I schedule. definitely saw the column, and I've seen, you know, and I've seen the comments, and I will make co comments. And I I just you read the just, comments. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I do read. The, I try to avoid reading the comments. Oh, I do. I get I if, if I read the comments. Actually, I find the comments more interesting than the articles. Oh well, no thanks a lot. Well, no, <laughs> but you see, if if I if I read the comments and replied to the comments, I wouldn't get anything done. So no, uh, no. I, uh, you put out articles all the time. No, but I I do read the comments and and I and I do want to address all those. Uh, as far as the people who were wondering about Nick Edwards being with the Melbourne Rebels, uh, he has not been in camp. His coach from Sydney Uni, Damian Hill, was, you know, had had talked to him about possibly going, but I he he did not make the uh, make the cut to get into the training squad or anything like that. So I know that that's how come we didn't get into the Nick Evans sighting. Uh, Nick Nick Edward, Nick Edward. Nick Evans. Where where that came from? But Ben is you know Ben was terrific, and hey, it would it would be. 
Awesome. We're actually going to have some other guests on, very similar to Ben. We have Ozzy McLean, who coached England, I mean, uh, New Zealand under 19 for five years, and they won three world titles. And he was the Canterbury coach when they won the NPC, and he coached the Hurricanes. And now he is a technical consultant for Samoa. So he has an interesting take. That's good. Yeah. American rugby, and he lived in Aspen for a while. So he has an interesting take on American rugby, and he has an interesting take on developing nations and and top tier nations. So he's going to join our show as well. He was coach of the Hurricanes, coach of New Zealand under twenty ones, and is now working in Trinidad and Tobago as the guy who's trying to take their sevens program forward. So we're going to have some which, interesting. Which I, th- I think would be great. We, we've also we're also going to be getting uh, Matt Hawkins to come in and talk to us uh, before the the USA sevens in Las Vegas. And um, one one last comment um, about Ben's, Ben Darwin that I thought interesting, and I'd be interested to talk to future guests about it, is his how he discusses film and film analysis. Because it wasn't that long ago that we would get people from Australia and New Zealand coming into the United States. And when I brought up the t- topic of film analysis, they would essentially poo-poo it and you know paralysis by analysis we would get a lot of comments like that but when ben starts talking and here's a modern coach a young coach he's talking about coding up every engagement coding up every practice as well as every game and that's a that's a more modern approach to it i think it'd be interesting to see because i think that's a battle that we fight in the united states about exactly how we want to go about it and when we have a coach show up uh, from overseas, does his approach jibe with what people expect it to be? Well, it's, it's certainly not a battle. What he does is he he downloads about thirty games a week. I, I was talking to him off air about that. And he yeah. goes to a goes to a website, downloads about thirty games a week, and and codes them and looks at them. And I think he has a similar approach to Hodges on that. They're they're pretty tech savvy, and I think that I think that's the way that's the way it is. I mean. And we'll have Simon Hardy on, and and we'll, all these guys. It's Simon Hardy, Murray Ralston, and and Aussie McLean. Murray and Aussie are in their fifties. Simon's in his fifties. They're video heads. They're the same as they're the same as Ben Darwin. They're the same as uh, they're the same as uh, Dave Hodges. Those guys are video heads, and I think that they realize you can't hide. There is no hiding. Now, films yeah. do lie a little That's bit. Right. But there is no well, hiding. Oh, oh, and and the the big not hiding. I don't know if you heard of, you you got caught this from the uh, England sevens team. They stick GPS units on their uh, on their shirts while they're training, and then track every step they take during their their training and their fitness workouts. So there's no hiding. It's not like they say, "Did you do the workouts?" He's he, the guy's looking at the laptop, saying, "I know exactly how fast you ran here. I know exactly how far you ran." I've got the GPS recording the entire thing. How scary is that? If you can't lie to your coach, if you can't lie to your fitness coach, then you know, then then what can you do? I was one of the things Ben and I were talking about prior to being on the show was, from a physical standpoint, everybody is very similar. That everybody runs about the same. Everybody. Bench press is about the same. Squats about the same. Deadlifts about the same. Everybody's very similar within their positions. They're all around the same size. The difference really is mental. And and like Ben said, you have to believe that you're going to win. And you have to believe that you deserve to win. And you have to believe that. So in order to make that happen. And, I, and I'm not saying you can't lie to your fitness coach. You know what I mean. I know. I, I mean, but I think that until they can measure your mentality, and I think when Al Caravelli was on the show, talked yep. about the Navy SEALs thing. And at, You're right. Al Caravelli talked a lot about mental toughness. He talked a lot about heart. And he also talked about self-belief and the idea that he changed as a coach from essentially accepting a defeat by New Zealand and Fiji, et cetera, to – trying his damnedest to get that win, to treating it like we can win this. And if the coach starts having that attitude, the players start having that attitude, and we start to see an incremental jump. That is a good approach, and I, and I think that that's, that's helped that team dramatically in, in the fact that 
they've now gone after the victory. Whether or not you would attain it, you have to, you have well, to try. Well, you've to got to try. That's 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 the whole point. That's that's why when people say we shouldn't play internationally until we're competitive, well, what first of all, what about the players who want to try, who want to get out there and play? We're not going to be competitive without we're not going to be competitive without putting ourselves in the arena. You don't just kind of show up. Even South Africa, who had a tremendous competition, had a tremendous everything. When they came back after apartheid. They did struggle against the top tier nations. They got young. smacked around a couple of times, yeah. And then, but they they, they, they were they had the ability to to put it together. And part of it was again they had the mental toughness, and they had one of the greatest captains in the history of the game to help them. Anyway, that all being said, happy and, New Year, everybody. <laughs> have a happy New Year, uh, Bruce McLean. Thanks a lot. Bronk will be back very soon. He's still working on projects, but uh, he's he's also helping us on the back end. And, uh, but he uh, he probably keeps us on a tighter rein than we're keeping ourselves. So yeah, uh, it's kind of like the teenagers with the the house free for the weekend. Uh, but with with that said, Bruce, thanks a lot, and thanks everybody for listening. This is Rugga Matrix America. <laughs> <laughs>